Why does nobody ever have a key when they need to have a key? Today, we are back with another episode of Curious Tales. Uh, sorry about the skipping a week. Or was it two weeks? I don't even know at this point anymore. We uh, were renovating the house. There has been remodeling being yeah. done. And now your sister is in town. My sister is in town. Yeah. Hi, sister, who I know is not going to listen to this, but that's okay. I love you anyway. True crime's not her thing. It's fine. It's yeah. cool. It is cool. Yeah. Okay, so today I'm going to tell you a story. You're going to tell me a story? Yeah. For how many episodes? Maybe like three. Oh. I don't know. Like, this case is a lot. I dived into this case, but it's like a lot. It might be a two-parter. It might be a three. I kind of feel like it's a three So this is the one that you were originally going to do back in, what, October? It's a lot. Okay, so you've been researching this since October. It's a lot. Okay. Well, I'm going to be doing the other case that I was going to do back in October when we were going to not tell each other. Okay, well, you know a little bit. I little, I broke that rule bit. and I told you a little bit, but like hold on to your what paint splattered PJ pants. Hold on to your paint splattered PJ pants. I don't have any other PJ pants. <laughs> so I'm gonna start out in 1925. Okay. But this did not take place in 1925. But in 1925, you like the historical ones. In 1925, William Gordon was released from Peterhead Prison in Scotland. Unbeknownst to authorities, Gordon smuggled out a message written in waterproof paper underneath of his tongue. Dead waterproof paper in 1925? Hey, you know... I'm sorry. That's just pretty amazing. I don't know how you waterproof the paper, but it was amazing. The That's... message was a plea for help, and it was to be delivered to none other than, drumroll, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Wait, 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 wait. The guy who wrote Sherlock Holmes? Yes. And also The Lost World, which was like a dinosaur-human... Yes. He also wrote a lot of other stuff. The plea for help came from a convicted murderer named Oscar Slater, who was desperate to prove his innocence. Okay. He'd been accused and convicted. He, he does realize that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle is only the author of Sherlock and not actually Sherlock. Actually, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle is actually a huge advocate during this time for getting people who have been 
unjustly, unjustly, unjustly like convicted of crimes that they weren't, you know, that they didn't do. He's pretty big in the political career. Okay, I did not know that. Yeah, okay. He'd been accused and convicted of killing an 83-year-old spinster by the name of Marion Gilchrist, who was found bludgeoned to death in her West Princess street flat. Okay. Tongue, note, under it, waterproof paper, Sir Conan Arthur Doyle. How could I not? Arthur Conan Doyle. What did I say? Sir Conan Arthur Doyle. I don't care. His name could be Conan Doyle. Except it's- Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> it's Arthur Conan Doyle. Well, I'm going to tell you a story properly. So we should probably start back when it first happened. Okay. So this guy gets out of prison and he's smuggling a note that he's going to take to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. But first, first. we got to know how this guy wound up in prison. We're going to start with the murder victim. Part one is going to be all about Marion Gilchrist. That makes sense. And let me tell you, she is straight out of like a horror novel. Really? Yeah. Wait, are we talking like... Like if Agatha Christie or Sir Arthur Conan Doyle wrote in a character of an old spinster lady, this would be her. Only it really happened. She's a real life person. I mean, she was a real life person. Until she was dead. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. I'm listening. I am ready for this story. Tell me, Micah. Tell me, tell me, tell me. I mean, let me just point out that she was really difficult to research because there's way more information on Oscar Slater than there is on the murder victim. I suppose that makes more sense. Yeah. Sometimes it's easier to find information on a murderer than it is the murderee. So, Marion Gilchrist was born into a somewhat wealthy family. Her father was a successful engineer and they lived comfortably. She had several siblings, although I wasn't actually able to find like any of their names or how many siblings she had. Considering how hard it was for you to find research on her. I did find out that her mother died when she was like really young. So she kind of took it upon herself to take care of her father in his old age. Oh. Yeah. As one does. Was he, was she like, do you know like where in the placement of birth order she was? Uh, no. No. I, I honestly don't know. I just know she has siblings. I don't know if she was younger or older or whatever. Okay. But she chose the route of taking care of a parent. Because of this, Marion inherited a bulk of her father's wealth after he passed away. Okay, so she was rewarded for being a good daughter. Yeah, I heard that her inheritance was like 80,000 pounds or adjusted for inflation. We're talking 6.5 million pounds. Or for us Americans, 9 million. What? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that woman was set up for life. She never married. I mean, she did live to be of the ripe old age of, what did you say? She was 83. 83. Yeah, she that's, was 83 that's years old. That's impressive. But she never married. So what year does the murder take place? 1912? 12. 1912. 1912. Or 13. We'll find out. <laughs> well, okay then. Okay, so she never married, and I think that's because... Of her inheritance. I mean, who would want to, like, share all of that money with a husband? You know? Uh, Now at 83, she lived in a respectable neighborhood in a flat at West Prince 
straight. Though she had a rather large family with plenty of nieces and nephews now, she never really saw or spoke to them. She was kind of estranged from the family. I guess when you inherit like both nine million dollars, you're maybe not your sister or brother's favorite. Right. Instead, she lived a recluse life with only her 21-year-old maid, Helen Lambie, to keep her company. She, like many people, had a love for jewelry and had accumulated quite a collection of rings pendants, brooches, etc. She has a lot of jewelry which could be motivation for a robbery. She has nine million dollars. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, but is it not in a bank? It's something? probably in a bank. So but the jewelry is like in yeah. her flat. It's, yeah, basically. Um her so, collection was estimated to be worth three thousand or adjusted for inflation, two hundred and ninety-five thousand eight hundred pounds or for us Americans, three hundred and forty-seven thousand three hundred and twenty-eight dollars. Damn. Because of her large collection of jewels, Marion became concerned that someone would learn of her collection and try and rob her. So Marion took like protective measures. She became somewhat paranoid, you would say. Uh-oh. Okay, so this, I have a feeling that this paranoia is going to be important. It is. I think so. I believe it is very important. Okay, so did she know the guy who was convicted of her murder? Like, at all? Or am I just jumping the gun there? No, you're very much jumping the gun, and I'll let you know at the end of this podcast. This episode, you'll find out. Oh, fine. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> fun. I will just shut up and let you tell the story now. <laughs> okay, so Marion became concerned that someone would try to rob her, so she placed a double lock on her door. Okay. She even went so far as to hide her collection in various places. She sewed them in curtains. She hid them in wardrobes, dresses, coat pockets, underneath of carpets, etc. Okay. Wow. She owned a safe, but, I mean, if you're going to rob somebody, where's the first place you're going to go? The safe. So she didn't leave them in her safe. Instead, it housed various papers, including her will. Marion was not on good terms with any of her relatives, as I said, and she had few friends that she trusted. The two people who Marion was particularly close with was a former maid named Maggie Galbraith Ferguson and her daughter, Marion Gilchrist Ferguson. Now, there was a rumor that Maggie was like Marion's illegitimate daughter. Okay. And that's why she let this woman into her life and why Maggie would have named her daughter after Marion. But none of that was ever proven. I mean, it's 1900s, early 1900s. You know, An illegitimate child would be a very, very bad thing. So, I mean, it's just a rumor, but it's a very interesting rumor. Okay, so Marion lived alone except for her newish housemaid, a 21 year old woman named Helen Lambie or Nellie. A lot of people just called her Nellie instead of Helen, it was just Nellie. So, I'll probably refer to her as Nellie. 
Whoa, Nelly. <laughs> a likable, high-spirited, superficial, and unreflective girl. She had worked for Miss Gilchrist for about three years, and the two women got along. But it is interesting that a previous employer, Agnes Gunthrie, described her as a very good domestic worker, but most illiterate and rather a low mentality. Very cunning and not at all trustworthy. Okay, so hang on. This girl is 21? Yeah. And she worked for her for two years? Three years. Three years. So that means she was 18. Yes. So that means she was a teenager. Yes. I'm sorry to all the teenagers out there, but... None of y'all are trustworthy. <laughs> teenagers, it, the brain is still developing. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> no, the brain, psychologically, the brain is still developing in a teenager. So, I mean, not all teenagers are motivated to do things. Yes, but, I mean, I kind of find it interesting that Marion would have hired her if her papers literally said not at all trustworthy. Her recommendations were not the <laughs> greatest. Maybe she was just like, you know, maybe the maybe your last employer was just really harsh, super critical, and you know, you just deserve a second chance. Maybe. Maybe Marion had a soft spot for giving people second chances. Maybe. I mean, if the other one had an illegitimate child, unproven, I know. Yeah, unproven. So other than the former maid and her daughter, and now Nellie, Marion didn't keep many other people around. She wasn't a very liked woman as she didn't go the traditional route of marrying for her fortune because she inherited it. Multiple rumors surfaced that she herself was a criminal and she gained her fortune by buying and selling stolen jewels. Though this no, was... She inherited it from her father. What? Yeah, so it was really only a rumor but, you know, people talk. You know? Oh yeah. If you're people... you're... In that time period, you're unmarried, you've never been married, you're a spinster who has all this money. They're like, well, where'd you get it? I don't buy that your father would have left you all this money. I mean, it was bad enough to be an unmarried woman. Yeah. But a rich one, yeah. So she lived at 15 Queens Terrace, which was a three-story building. It had a flat on each floor, and Marion lived on the second floor for nearly 30 years. Okay. The floor above her at the time was vacant, but the floor below her was home to the Adams family. Continue. They they lived below. And their flat had its own second entrance apart from the main entrance. Um kinda like the basement in America, you know. They, okay. they lived below, and her floor was actually, like, the first floor. And the tenant, if there was a tenant above her, would have been the second floor. But there's this basement, so it has, like, a second entrance. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Okay. I, that's the only way I could think to describe it. The door to the main entrance led upstairs to the hallway, like through a lobby and upstairs that housed Marion's front door and the vacant front door on the third floor. You'll walk in the main entrance and there's stairs that go up, Marion's door, stairs that go up, Yeah, third exactly. Floor. Um, and then there's like a different entrance for the one yeah that goes okay. down to but it's separate from this main okay. entrance so i get uh i'm trying to like 
visualize. Yeah, so that means that you can come in through the main entrance, go up the stairs to get to her apartment, and that doesn't mean that that will disturb the only other one, and the other one's vacant. Yeah, exactly. So, access to her apartment, you gotta get to two doors. You have to get through two doors and a bolt lock, but... She also installed a sort of security system. She get a dog? <laughs> well, she did have a dog. Marianne was a single woman who lived alone, except for Nellie. So to ensure her safety, she had locks on all the windows and doors. Like I said, bolt Makes locks, sense. but she also locked the windows. Makes sense. And her front door was installed with three deadlocks and a bolt chain. She also okay. added a security device to the main entrance that was in most hotels at the time that allowed visitors entry. Basically, it was like an early buzz system. Oh, like, so you like press buzz a button to let like you out. in? Yeah. Okay. So if someone had no key to the door and wanted to visit, they would use the device that would ring Marion, who would pull a lever that was just outside of her door. And that would let them in the main entrance yeah. of her door. So basically, if somebody came in and I guess it was like a lever outside the main door that, that would go up and it would ring Marion's door. And okay. she would hear the bell ringing and then she would... Her door had sort of like a stained glass window or whatever, but okay. she would come out and look down to see through the okay. stained glass because, window okay. who it was. She would pull the lever. If it's and, somebody she knew. And she would pull the lever. And if a person came in the front door and she made the mistake of like letting this person in that she didn't know. She could close her door. She could run back in to her door and close it and lock it with the three bolts and everything. Like she was very secure. Okay, so this isn't just a random robbery kind of scenario. Because I <laughs> it sounds like she has like some pretty high tech security for the day i mean basically if you were like trying to visit her they would ring the doorbell she would come up pull a lever she would see you she'd run inside and then say i was the killer you'd make your way up the door but you would still have to get through all the deadbolts yes and locks on the door exactly did they have an axe <laughs> theoretically wait what theoretically the police believed there was an axe involved was there evidence on the door of an axe no well then okay why is okay i i was <laughs> so I was like safe to say the building was very very secure Okay, so this lady has a lot of money, a lot of jewelry, hiding it in places, uh -huh. top-notch security system. How was she murdered? Now, Marion <laughs> had a dog. Of course, because, I mean, you know, she's a spinster. Yes. And, and you need the companionship. And everybody loves a doggy. She right. had an Irish terrier who fell ill and died. Oh. Her maid, Helen Lambie, thought it had accidentally eaten something poisonous. Wait, what? Her maid, Nellie, thought that the dog had eaten something poisonous. Accidentally. Wait, does she just have a maid or does she have a cook, too? 
No. She just has a maid. Okay, then maid, something shady with you. <laughs> but Marianne was convinced it was no accident. On November 20th, Marianne altered her will. Okay. November 20th, 1908. I was wrong. This happens in 1908. My bad. Okay, Sorry, guys. So her dog dies. Mm-hmm. She thinks that somebody killed the dog on purpose. Yeah. But Nellie just thinks it was an accident. Like, maybe they put down rat poison or something in the loft and the dog got into it or something like that. She she wasn't sure how the dog got sick or poisoned, but that it had been an accident. And Marion was spooked enough to change her will. So what did she change her will to? Um, The previous version, which had been drawn up just six months earlier, had divided her estate, including jewelry, paintings, furniture, silver, and cash reserves among various nieces and nephews. The new will, however, left the balance and the estate to Maggie and Marion Ferguson. Okay, so she thought somebody in her family killed her dog. It might have been trying to might kill have been her. trying to kill her. So she changed her will and cut out her family and left it all to her previous maid, maid and her child and her daughter. Okay. Yes. Okay, that. that so it's Oscar a nephew? Cause like her family's pretty sus. <laughs> In the first few weeks of December, over a dozen neighbors and local residents reported seeing a man loitering outside of Marion's building and even watching her through the window. In mid-December, Helen visited the home of the previous employer, Agnes Gunthry, that, you know, gave her the bad review. Right, right. Um, so apparently they were friendly enough for her to visit. Nellie told her of the recent going-ons, the dog dying, the jewelry being hidden away, and the strange man outside, stating that Miss Gilchrist felt sure that there was a man coming to kill her. Okay, if I didn't know this woman was murdered, I would think that it sounds like senile old lady. I mean, she's 83, so Mm -hmm. her brain is, at 83, your brain may not be as sharp as it used to be. Exactly. So So they're unsure. You know, it could be dementia, Alzheimer's. Obviously, it wasn't enough for, like, Agnes Gunthry or Nellie to go to the police. I mean, if she's hiding jewelry in like random places she's already kind of leaning towards paranoia so that wouldn't be an alert right people safe to say marion was stressed over the recent happenings that came up (laughs) that's just sad in of itself so she came up with a distress signal oh okay remember the adams family down below yes her distress signal would be that she would knock on the floor three times and the Adams family down below would hear the knocking on their ceiling and they would know that Marion needed help and they would come running. Okay, that, that makes Which, sense. I'm sorry, if she's 83 years old, it's probably good for her to have a fail safe in case she fell or something. Right, because if you fell, the, a lot of it is a lot that can happen when you fall. You can't get up. Yeah. But and if, if you're able to get help, 
fast enough. I believe she gave the Adams family a spare key so that if something did happen, she could, they could get they out. could get into her apartment. Did something happen to the spare key? I have no idea because it was never used. Okay. This is another one of those stupid people who have a spare key but don't bring a spare key moment. Oh no, not another. <laughs> Okay, so basically, she had done this several times as like a test to see how fast they would come, and usually they they sort of become a little bit desensitized. Oh to the no, whole thing. the old lady who cried wolf. Basically, help! I've fallen and I can't get up. Psych. So the Adams family agreed to it, not really thinking much of it. You know, paranoid, crazy old Marion Gilchrist. Right, and I mean she's old, so if she falls and she knocks three times up, well, we're gonna gonna go fetch a doctor. December 21st, 1908, the day of the murder. Okay. Marion was a person of habit, and so every night around 7 o'clock, her maid would leave for 10 minutes to go get the newspaper. That's it. Just 10 minutes. At night or morning? At night. 7 p.m. They'd go get the newspaper at 10 okay. p.m. Um, so her maid went out to get groceries and the newspaper at the same time, it didn't change, and December 21st was no different. This task usually took Nellie only 20 minutes, not 20, only 10 minutes to complete. She left Marion reading in the dining room, collected her so keys. this woman gone for 10 minutes? Mm -hmm. She left Marion reading in the dining room, collected her keys, and exited the apartment locking the door behind her. Okay, so she left the old woman in mm -hmm. a apartment. Reading in the dining room. Okay. A few minutes later, Arthur Adams and his sister were startled when they heard the knock, knock, knock on the ceiling. Recognizing it as the signal, Arthur agreed to go check on her. The first strange thing that he noticed was that the outside door that led into the lobby and up the stairs to Marion's room was open, just like a crack. So he pushed his way open, like through the door, and up the steps to Marion's front door where he rang the doorbell. I guess he'd forgotten the spare key because, again, it was just not used here. They just can't be bothered to carry a key. <laughs> that was the problem in, in the last one, too. Exactly. He could see through the stained glass window. Marion's door had a stained glass window in it. So, um, could, so, she, so he could see sort he, of inside. Yeah, he saw that there was a gas lamp lit in the hallway, but that there was no movement inside, and he could hear no movement inside. So he waited there for a little while until he heard the sound of what he thought was Nellie breaking wood inside the kitchen. What? So basically, because these are old. Okay, so like a like a wood stove. Or yeah, something. a wood stove, okay. and that he thought he heard Nellie inside the kitchen breaking wood to start the gas stove. Up. Okay, that makes sense. So he just assumed, well, Nellie's home. Nellie will handle whatever the problem is. Not knowing that Nellie has gone out to get a newspaper. Exactly. When he returned home, though, he found his two sisters had grown even more concerned. They uh, had heard more noises coming from... They insisted that he go back and check again. Take the key this time, dude. They explained to him that Miss Gilchrist had signaled a second time while he was out. Only this time it was louder and with more urgency. Okay. So Arthur rushed back upstairs and knocked on Marion's door frantically and with a little more force, like 
so that he knew that he'd be heard. But again, no key. But still, no answer on the door. I don't know if at this point he was about ready to use the spare key, but he waited to hear and see if there was any movement, and he didn't hear any movement, and I don't know if he was about to use the spare key at this point, if he brought the spare key, what the point of him having a spare key was, but then he heard footsteps. Okay. Only they weren't coming from the apartment, they were coming from behind him. Ooh, was it Nellie? Nellie was returning with the newspaper. She'd only been gone 10 minutes, like normal. It's just normal. All this happened in 10 minutes. All of it happened in only 10 this minutes. This was murdered in 10 minutes? Yes. Wow. And Nellie was surprised to see Arthur at the door. He was surprised to see her at behind because him. Because he thought she was inside with the wood breaking. He told her that Marion had signaled twice. twice asking for help and thought that he had heard Nellie inside breaking wood. But that wasn't the case because Nellie was right there behind him. So... And so he was what very, <laughs> he was very, very concerned. Nellie wasn't very concerned. Nellie said that there was a pulley in the kitchen that needed, like, oil, basically. There was a pulley in the kitchen that needed oil. Okay. I guess, like, a dumbwaiter or something that would bring up wood for, you know, every sense. day or something like that. But whatever, it made noise. And so she said that it just needed a little oil and so she would check it she unlocked the door and entered the flat while author stood author arthur okay arthur. she unlocked the door and entered the flat while arthur stood in the hallway waiting to hear back that marion was all right nelly was a little more concerned with the pulley and nelly made her way down the hallway towards the kitchen to check on the pulley <sighs> when a man in an overcoat strode out of the bedroom. Oh, the, now you're going to be worried about Marion. Yeah. It strode out of the spare bedroom. Not even Marion's bedroom. It was the spare bedroom. Was it Nellie's bedroom? No. they. It was like a three-bedroom flat. So okay. it was just a spare bedroom. He walked quietly past Nellie in the hallway and even gave sort of like a welcoming smile. So Nellie didn't attempt to stop him because she just thought he was supposed to be there. You know, that like she had gotten a visitor while Nellie was gone. Nellie didn't attempt to stop him or express any sort of surprise. So Arthur just stepped aside to let the man pass. The man just casually walked down the steps. Oh my god. And out the door into the street. Are you kidding me? Nellie, still not thinking anything is wrong, went to the kitchen. Never, okay, never mind that she has knocked three times. She's signaled them with more urgency. And this yes, but just... they think that it was just the man walking around or whatever, oh, you know? Okay. Nellie went into the kitchen to inspect the pulley, but then she went into the spare bedroom to check what the man was doing in the spare bedroom. Right. And she screamed out to Arthur outside. The woman's been murdered in the spare bedroom. No, that everything was okay. Oh. And Arthur okay. said, well, where is your mistress? Arthur's like, I'm not leaving until I hear Marion is okay. And Nellie's like, okay, she's in the dining room. That's where I left her. Let me go check on her. 
And so Nellie leaves the spare bedroom and walks into the dining room. All this time, Arthur is just standing outside in the hallway. Oh, yeah, just invited in. Exactly. Rude. And all of a sudden, he hears Nellie scream. Because she's dead. Because she's dead. In the dining room? In the dining room. Where's the safe? Spare bedroom. Ah, there it is. So mm-hmm. Arthur went running into the dining room after hearing Nellie scream, and he saw her standing over Marion's dead body, and Marion's dead body had a blood-soaked rug over her head. Ooh. Yeah. Okay. Arthur's first reaction to this bloody scene was to, I mean, he just jumped right in there. He ran downstairs as fast as he could to go try and find the man that just left. Right, because that's obvious. Yeah, the murderer. Right? I mean, you just saw, my God, that's balls, dude. Yeah. Just casually stroll past a couple of witnesses. Even smiles at them. You know? By the time he made it downstairs and out into the streets, it was empty and the man had already disappeared. Um, But while he was searching for the man, he did, however, manage to run into a police constable named William Neal. Oh, good. He found a bobby. They both returned to the flat. Like, he just, like... A woman's been murdered, please come, kind of thing. Nellie ran downstairs to Arthur's sister to tell them what had happened. And she asked them to guard the house and gave them her spare key. Because I guess Arthur has his spare key. I don't know why she needs to give the spare key. But she gave the spare key because she needed to go tell Nellie's niece, Nellie, because she needed to go tell Miss Gilchrist's niece, Margaret Burrell, who lived just down the street. Okay. So Nellie left, leaving the sister in charge. Oh my God, that is so stupid. I'm sorry. You are a witness to a murder. You do not leave. You don't leave. You don't go I mean, let the police tell the family. Oh my God, I'm so stressed. Go on. <laughs> Once there, Constable Neil and Arthur made their way into the dining room and the men lifted the blood-soaked rug and came to a very horrifying conclusion or realization or whatever. Marion had been brutally beaten, especially around the face and head. In fact, one of her eyes was missing from the socket. She was barely recognizable. In 10 minutes. There was a nearby chair that was covered in blood and brain matter, which was thought to be the murder weapon. The the chair. The chair. But even after all this, Marianne was still breathing. No, this woman is still alive. And was making the slightest movements with her left hand. Arthur, jumping into, like, action again, ran across the street to his doctor, who lived across the street, whose name is also Adams, but they're not of relation. His name is Dr. John Adams. When they returned to the loft a few minutes later, Dr. Adams examined Marion to discover that they were too late. She died waiting on help. This was around 920, not 920, this was around 720. Nellie leaves at 7. Mm-hmm. Comes back at 7.10. Comes back at 7.10. And at 7.20, she's dead. 
At 7.20, she's dead. Damn, this guy works fast. At 7.40, detectives from Glasgow Western Police Office arrived on the scene. I mean, they were fast. 7.40? Is this... Is this in England or is this in Scotland? Scotland. Scotland. Glasgow, Scotland. Glasgow. Yeah. Nellie returned from Marion's niece and told her everything and then came back so that she could give a statement to the police. She'd never have left. Yeah. And the police noted that she seemed excited by all the happenings but not like suspiciously excited just like there's a lot going on and she's like you know jittery or uh, excitable you know whatever nervous, nervous. Yeah. but not like suspiciously right they began their investigation and they quickly noticed that an oil lamp was in the hallway as well as the spare bedroom where Nellie first encountered the strange man ugh They found a box of matches that were different from all the rest of the matches in the house. So this guy brought his own matches? And one of them was a used match sitting below the lantern in the spare bedroom. Okay. You just carried around a box of matches. A box that acted as a safe in her room. The safe. A small box was splintered open and various papers were strewn all over the floor. Oh, wait. Nellie just walked into the room, looked around. Oh, these papers are strewn all over the room. This is fine. Everything's fine. We're cool here. She maybe just didn't look down or just she might glanced not have by seen or just something like, like that. Walk into a or room. maybe they were strewn behind the bed. Yeah. You know? I mean, like, if, if, if it was over here on this side of the bed. Yes. And, like. But I did find that a little strange. That yeah. She go, everything's fine. You know? <sighs> this nanny. This nanny. This <laughs> This, uh, Nellie is totally sus. Very sus. Is Oscar her boyfriend? No. The various items of jewelry were scattered across the table. An inventory was done of Marion's jewelry, and the only item Nellie reported missing, because she would know all the jewelry that's in the house, was a crescent-shaped brooch encrusted with diamonds. Okay. There was no signal of forced entry. Neither the doors or windows showed any sort of damage. What I find... No signs of forced entry. No damage. Yes. What I find interesting was that all these jewels were just laying around the room. A diamond, two other rings, a golden bracelet, and a gold watch and chain were found just laying on the table. Yet the robber only took a crescent brooch. Was it a family heirloom? What? I mean, I don't know anything about it other than it's a diamond crescent brooch. Okay. Nothing else. He didn't take anything else. Just the brooch. And honestly, I don't believe that the man was looking for jewels. Obviously, he he was looking for, like, a specific piece of paper. No, no. When somebody commits a murder and they try to make it look like a robbery and they just, like, you know make a big mess that's not what happened here but i mean they like you know pull out drawers and they they like put stuff everywhere but then they leave like you know stereo systems computers and right jewelry just lying around large sums of cash you know the police are gonna walk in and go okay it's somebody that they knew except for they didn't in this case yeah whatever it was nelly didn't know what could have been taken from the safe or the wooden box. Because she did not know what was what, in the box? Exactly. Okay. Nellie and Arthur gave the police the description of the man they saw leaving. And you would think they got a good look at him, right? Yeah. You would think that it would be so simple to find him or that 
Nellie would be able to identify him because she didn't show any sort of surprise in seeing him there. Yeah, you would think it's somebody that they knew. The only problem was neither of them remembered what he looked like. They said that he was a man, maybe between 25 and 30 years old. He was probably about 5 feet and 8 or 9 inches tall. Dark hair, slim build, clean shaven. He wore a light gray overcoat and a dark cloth cap. So like, vague description was vague. It, like, pretty much described every man in Glasgow. <laughs> well, not the bearded ones. Exactly, not the bearded ones. <laughs> or the ones in a dark overcoat. Nellie, Nellie told the police that she didn't recognize the man and that she wasn't sure she would even be able to identify the man because she didn't get a good look at his face. Arthur had confessed that he wasn't wearing his glasses that day. He left them downstairs and couldn't have seen his face well enough to identify the man. Wow. So, like, vague description is very vague. Glasgow... That man just, like, lucked out. So the Glasgow newspaper the next day published the description, the very vague description. Which, of course, has everybody going like, oh, yeah, it's this dude. It's that guy. It's that guy. No, it's totally that guy. I'm telling you. And the description of that man had a beard yesterday, but he doesn't today. He's clean shaven. (laughs) And... A description of the crescent-shaped brooch that had been reported stolen, asking jewelers, pawnbrokers, and dealers to be on the lookout for the brooch. The news of the horrible murder quickly spread, not only through Glasgow, but throughout the entire country. Waves of people visited West Prince Street to see the building. The mysterious and terrible crime caught the public's attention, and soon the police were feeling the pressure to solve the murder and solve it quickly. Humans are so fascinated by the macabre, but then there's also Well, that's the, why we do podcasts, you know? It is. And then there's also the injustice of it, that this, this little old defenseless woman is literally murdered in her own home, in a 10-minute locked home. In her locked home, in a span of 10 minutes when her maid steps out to go get the newspaper so i mean you know and she's not and she's an upper crust lady so she's not like in an area where oh that stuff happens this is a nicer neighborhood and of course you know what happens when it happens in a nicer neighborhood exactly and this is a nicer neighborhood now down the street it's not glasgow is a very interesting area where you could go a block and you're in like a bad or a poor neighborhood so crime could have spilled into from a even a block place. away okay. exactly that makes Okay. Okay, so... But they would also have to have a more intimate knowledge. I'm sorry. I'm sitting here trying to speak like, out. Yeah, exactly. Who would know you'd have to get past all of those locks? The, lo- the levy system. If there was no signs of 4th century and all the windows were secure, that means... It had to have been someone... She knew. She knew. And would That's let the in. only way. Mm-hmm. Or trusted, at the very least. Yeah, I mean, it could have been... Maybe it was like a jeweler. It could have been a jeweler. She buys jewels. But I don't know that she would have bought a jewel with, like, Nellie not home in case something went Right, back. right. You but, know? I mean, it could have been maybe, like, a nephew or an in-law. Or it could have been maybe a milkman or somebody that she yes. would have known. 
And so the police are definitely feeling the pressure because this has grown very popular overnight. Is Oscar a milkman? <laughs> no. But the only clue the police had to go on was a bloody chair, some matches, a vague, vague description of a man, and a missing brooch. They wouldn't find their next lead until a few days later on the 23rd of December when a 15, sometimes I read 14, I'm unsure, when a 15 or 14-year-old girl named Mary Burrowman came forward to save the case. Okay, a child. Mm -hmm. okay. Mary worked for a local boot maker, and she did errands, basically, to deliver the boots. And at around 710... Hey, you know, you gotta work in those days. You yeah. Just, you don't work, you don't eat. Exactly. And around 710 at night, on the night of the tragedy, she was sent to deliver a package. While passing along West Prince Street near Marion's house... She saw the murderer. She saw a man dart out of a building and down the steps. He hesitated for a moment, trying to decide which way to run. Then he ran towards her, knocked her down, and ran by. She was standing by a lamppost at the time and saw him clearly. She didn't think much of it and went on her way to deliver the package because, you know, it's just a man who well, walked yeah, it's by. Just, I mean, he could have been, maybe there was a family emergency, you know, oh, I'm going to be late for a meeting. It could be any number of things. I am late for dinner because it's exactly. 7 o'clock. Exactly. I'm rushing right now. I this will let you know how fast this murder spread, by the way. Later that night, she went to a Band of Hope meeting, which I googled, and it's basically like an organization for children to teach them about sobriety during a time when alcohol was viewed as, like, a, necessis a, necessis a necessity of life. Alcohol's <laughs> a necessity of life? Back in the 1900s, fresh water? That's true. So basically, it's like dare today, you know? It's an organization to prevent children from getting drunk. Oh, okay. Anyway, she went to the meeting and overheard some people talking about the murder. So she decided to go back to West Prince Street where she found a crowd of people and they were surrounding the door where she'd seen the man emerge. Later that night, she told her mother the story and she called the police. So she, she found out what was happening, and then she kind of goes, oh, that's the building. Exactly. And so she pieces it together going, oh, I saw the murderer. On December 24th, so, like, it happened at night, so practically, like, two days later. And this is almost Christmas time, too. Yeah. Mary gave a more descriptive description of the man she saw so that night. So finally, we have something more than just a vague description of a, of a clean-shaven young guy in an overcoat. The man was around 28 to 30 years old, tall and thin, with a face shaved, a clean-shaven face. His nose was slightly turned to the right side, and he wore a round tweed hat known as a Donegal, Donegal hat? I don't know. A Donegal hat, which was popular at the time, and a fawn-colored overcoat, which she thought could have been waterproof. He also wore dark trousers and brown boots. Now, Nellie and Arthur thought it was a gray overcoat, but Mary is saying that it's a tan overcoat or a fawn-colored overcoat. Right, like, like a baby deer. Right. Color. Well, depending on the lighting, 
it could have looked gray in the lighting. I mean, since the police thought that this description was just a tad different from Arthur and Nellie, don't they decided no, they decided that they might actually be looking for one man or two. So they weren't sure. They basically took into account both descriptions and said it could be one man and they both saw the same man. Or it could be he had an accomplice. Mary's description of the man she'd seen leaving the building was published on Friday, the 25th. Christmas Day. So like the next day. In the 2 o'clock edition of the Glasgow Evening evening newspaper. Merry Christmas to you. Four hours later, at 4.10, a bicycle dealer named Alan McLean read the newspaper and decided to call police. He said that he was part of a gambling club called the Sloper Club. While at the club, Alan met a man named Oscar Slater, who matched the description in the newspaper. Oscar had tried to sell the man a pawn ticket for a diamond-encrusted crescent brush. Okay. The police immediately went to Oscar's home and were shocked to discover that Oscar lived only 400 yards away from Marion's office. They just immediately went there to talk to him. Okay. They knocked on the door and asked to see Oscar Slater. A maid named Catherine Schmaltz answered and told them that no one by that name lived there. Alias? Her employer was a dentist named Mr. Anderson, who was on holiday in Monte Carlo. The police decided to search the home anyways. They have a search warrant. I don't know if you needed one back then. Once inside, they found wrapping paper from a watchmaker in London. The package was sent to Mr. Anderson's home address, but it wasn't addressed to Mr. Anderson. It was addressed to an Oscar Slater. They pressed Catherine for more information and learned that Oscar and his lover fled around 8 p.m. that night with enough luggage to suggest they weren't coming back. And that is where I am going to leave you. No! Yeah! That's where I'm gonna leave you. So I have so many questions. <laughs> I know. Is he connected to her, like, at all? You'll find out in part two. Okay. So stressful. Yeah. He's quite a character, too. I mean, this is flat out, like, a literature novel. And yet this was a real life, life case in okay. 1908 that really happened where an eccentric spinster got killed by possibly a man named Oscar Slater or maybe not a man named Oscar Slater but however the case is Sir Arthur Conan Doyle is going to get him out possibly okay so that's involved I told you it's a lot wow in the next episode we will go over who Oscar Slater really was how the police managed to track him down all the way in America what how Oscar believing in his innocence volunteers to go back oh idiot yeah and the trial that will happen okay and then in episode three it'll be the aftermath of the, the aftermath trial. And yeah. Sir Doyle getting him off. Possibly. In 1925 when this happens. Yeah. Do the math, man. 1908, 1925. That's almost 20 years. I know. Oh. We're going up to maybe two days a week. 
We're going to try. We're, We're going to try. try and go two days a week. So part two will come out in a few days. Hopefully. Maybe I mean, even the next day. You guys keep a lookout for it. Right. Yeah. Mm. All right. So I think this is where we're going to leave you off. I'm Missy. I'm Micah. And we'll see you next time when we find out what this Oscar dude did. Oscar Slater, man. Okay. Bye. Bye. Bye.